0: Love that. Now, if you guys are new with us and you don't know who I am, my name is Kenson. I have the honor of serving as a pastor here at Park, specifically our Bridgeport location. Really glad to be with you guys this morning. Today, we start a new sermon series in the book of Exodus, it is a masterpiece story of how God saves his people from Egyptian oppression and delivers them to himself. Now, as we go through this book and as we go chapter by chapter, we're going to be reminded of two things over and over again. The first is this, is that we're going to be reminded of our story. That just like how the Israelites experienced oppression from the hands of Pharaoh, we too will experience oppression because of sin. That as we see the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, whining, complaining and disbelieving, we will see ourselves in that then when we see the israelites are tempted to go back to their old way of life because following god is too hard we'll see ourselves in that and when we see moses trying to find every excuse not to take a courageous step for god we will see ourselves in that it's in the story of exodus we will see our story and our struggles but it's also in the story of exodus we will see a greater story, the greatest story, and it's the story of the cross. You know, after Jesus resurrects, he meets with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, hiding his true identity from them. And as he talks with them, the disciples share about the struggle that they're having to make sense of everything. Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah, but why did he die? And now we're told that the tomb is empty. What is going on? So to explain this, Jesus opens the Bible and says, every story you've ever read, every verse you've ever memorized, every, every law you've obeyed has always been about me. Luke chapter 24, verse 27, let me show it to you. This is what Jesus did. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. When it says beginning with Moses, it means the first five books of the Old Testament that Moses wrote, which includes Exodus. Jesus is saying that when you read the Exodus story, it is pointing to me. It is pointing to the cross. It is pointing to eternal salvation. That the book of Exodus foreshadows the story of Christ. For example, when someone sees a shadow, they don't say, oh, That's it. I've seen everything that needs to be seen. A tourist doesn't go to downtown. And when they get to downtown, they see the shadow of the Willis Tower and say, family, we've made it. Here it is. Let's take a picture with the shadow. You don't do that. When you see a shadow, it always tells you that something else bigger is casting it. That the story is not yet done. It's in the story of Exodus, Jesus casts that shadow. Then in the story of Exodus, it is not a story of the past. It's a story that is meant to point us to a new and better Exodus. So, for our time today, we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 1 and chapter 2 here. And what we're going to have in these two chapters is the historical setting and context before God takes his first step in delivering his people. Now, what we see here is that the Israelites are in immense suffering. That for the last 430 years, the people, have, people of God have flourished in Egypt through a set of very incredible circumstances. Joseph, Jacob's son, becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt, and it's through his leadership, Egypt thrives during a famine and is solidified as a world power. And because of this, Pharaoh makes a promise to Joseph. Let me show it to you. Genesis 47. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. This was the arrangement. And for the last, next 430 years, the Israelites multiplied. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, it says that 70 people came into Egypt from Joseph's family. His brothers and their wives and their children and their dad and so forth. And then we read in Exodus 12:37, it says that there were 600,000 men in the wilderness, not counting women and children. So you can conservatively say that the Israelites grew to at least 2 million people. Now, we get to present-day Pharaoh here, and he sees this booming immigrant population and begins to worry. In verses 9 and 10, he says, what's going to happen if they, the Israelites, decide to turn on us, the Egyptians? They will overrun us. So Pharaoh turns his back on the arrangement and he begins to oppress the Israelites. He first puts them into forced labor to make their lives miserable, but they kept multiplying. So in verse 13, it says that they become ruthless to the Israelites, which means that they begin to use physical violence towards them. And the hope here is that the men would be so exhausted, so weary, that they would stop procreating. Well, it didn't work. The Israelites kept coming. So Pharaoh takes the most drastic measure he makes into law to throw infant baby boys into the Nile River. Can you just imagine for a second how horrible that is? That you're in Egypt here and it is legal for someone who is different from you ethnically to be able to walk up to you and take your baby boy right out of your hands and kill him. And there is nothing you can do to stop it. And if you try to stop it, you only invite more violence onto your family. This is the state of the Israelites and it was horrific. The way we see chapter two coming to a close is that the Israelites are feeling defeated and they are desperate. They are groaning and crying out, God, will you help us? And this leads us to the topic for our sermon today Is there hope in our crisis? You know, for all of us here, we've either gone through a crisis, we're in a crisis. Or you're about to head into one, and every time we hit a crisis, we're no different than the Israelites. We begin to lose all hope. And what I want you guys to see from our passage here today is that when God puts you puts you in a crisis, it is never just a crisis. Now it is a crisis, but it's more than a crisis. A crisis is an opportunity to know and experience God at a level that you have never had before. That whenever God wants to reveal himself in a whole nother level, he consistently creates or allows somebody else to create a crisis. Situations you can't fix. You know, circumstances where all the options are gone. That when you thought that this could work, but it now doesn't work. When you spent all your money and you can't buy your way out of it. When you talk to all your friends and they can't hook you up with that connection to resolve the problem, you are in a crisis. You're in a situation that you cannot fix. And you can call it whatever you want, call it a catch-22, you're on a ledge, you're in a pickle, you're between a rock and a hard place. And crisis comes in all forms. Financial crisis, relational crisis, circumstantial crisis, medical crisis, spiritual crisis. The one common denominator in all of them is that you can't fix it and it's bigger than you. The Israelites are facing more than they can handle and some of you are facing more than you can handle. Why? It's because God wants you to know that he is your deliverer. Let me show you 2 Corinthians chapter 1 here. Paul is speaking to the church. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we, the spirit of life itself, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But. That was not to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says here that we were so overwhelmed, the crisis was so bad that we knew that we were going to die, but God did it so that we would know the one who raises the dead. That it was only through death could Paul learn what it meant to be resurrected. When God brings a crisis, it is always more than a crisis. It's for you to see Him in a way that you've never seen Him before. It's for you to see Him and want Him as your deliverer. You know, for the time that we have here today, I want to give you three reasons for hope in our crisis and how you can see God as deliverer from our text. Here are three points. Let me show it to you. First, God's deliverance is secure through His sovereignty. Second. God's deliverance can be accomplished through anyone. And finally, God's deliverance is greater than our disobedience. So first, God's deliverance is secure through his sovereignty. Now, sovereignty is just a really big word for how God is powerful and in control of everything. Now, it's interesting that in our story that the name of God rarely ever comes up. It first comes up in chapter 1, verse 17, and at the end of chapter 2. And these are two very long chapters covering years and years of Israel's history. And God is only mentioned twice. And this is done because it's, made, it's meant to make you ask a question. Is God even here? Is God present in this? With all this suffering, oppression, violence, and murdering that's going on, is God going to show up or not? What the author is doing here is teaching through silence that just because it's quiet does not mean that God is not busy at work. Instead, he is setting the stage ready for the big show. You know, it's kind of like going to a live theater or play. You get there 15 minutes early, you sit down, and you sit there, and there's really nothing going on. You know, you just see a big current and a stage, and that's about it, and from the outside, That's what it looks like. But if you have a chance to take a peek behind the Kern, you notice that it's anything but quiet, that the actors are rehearsing their lines, dancers are nailing their steps, production teams are doing the audio and video checks, directors are giving last-minute coaching tips, costume designers are doing last-minute touch-ups. Right behind this Kern is a madhouse of activity This is the best way I can picture chapters 1 and 2. That it might not look like much is happening, but God is working everywhere. That when God seems most hidden, he's not. When God seems most absent, he's not. He is working for good and justice behind the scenes even in the worst of tragedies. Let me just show you a couple of ways that we see this directly from our passage. First, you know that God is working. Because the Israelites can't stop multiplying. Okay, Exodus one seven says the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. You know what makes verse seven notable is that the language used here is almost word for word for the creation mandate that God gives to Adam and Eve. And let me show it to you side by side Exodus one seven. And Genesis 1.28, notice, fruitful, multiply, fill. This is not an accident. The author, Moses here, is pointing us to a greater promise here. In addition, in Genesis 15, God makes a promise to an almost 100-year-old Abraham. And he tells him that your descendants, the Israelites, will be as numerous as the stars. 70 people to 2 million people. God is in control. He is working his plan. You know, we also see this in the suffering of the Israelites because it did not catch God off guard. When God makes the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be great, he also knew that it would come with much difficulty. Genesis 15 says this. The Lord said this to Abram as he made the promise. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land, that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. 200 plus years before the Exodus, God already knew how this was all going to play out. The suffering was not something outside of his plan. Suffering and crisis was the very path God was going to use to bring deliverance and to show his name was great. And finally, one more example is that we see God at work because Pharaoh keeps failing. He he just can't do it right. He keeps failing. That as hard as Pharaoh tries, he can't stop God's will. The more Pharaoh tries to enslave a nation, the more the Israelites grow. The very edict that he gives to have every little infant boy killed, God uses that. Edict to have Moses adopted into his very home by his daughter. That the very deliverer of Israel, the one that would bring a future Pharaoh to his knees, was now living under his roof, roof and Pharaoh could not stop it. That he thought that through economic oppression, taskmasters, violence, that he could exert his will. But every time Pharaoh acted, he was only accomplishing the purposes of God. Do you guys see? In chapters 1 and 2, we might not hear much about God. Oh, but his presence is felt everywhere. Now, what does this mean for us? Even though God might be quiet, it doesn't mean that he's not at work in your life. That in hard circumstances, we, be, we can begin to kind of cast doubt on God. Like, God, you know, do, do you really care, God? God are you really going to ever help? Are you going to do anything about this? If we see anything from our verses here, just because we can't see it doesn't mean that God's not working. That sometimes the reason he hasn't answered my prayers or taken my problems away is because he has something else in mind. That maybe there's an idol to confront. Maybe he's bringing about maturity in our lives. Maybe a sin to confess. Maybe he is preparing me for a greater promise that I can't even imagine. When God is quiet, it's never an accident. He is sovereign. He is working behind the scenes. So, if this is true, here's the challenge for us Are we willing to trust and wait on Him? You know, the Exodus story is a story of divine deliverance, but it didn't happen overnight. It took centuries, it took many lifetimes, and I know that some of you sitting here, that just sounds ridiculous because we come from a culture of immediate desires, immediate information, immediate entertainment. When everything in culture tries to make everything easier and faster, that this is what's better, this is what's good. But I want to let you guys know that God often works on a much different timetable. That for God, waiting is not wrong. In fact, waiting is the very way he prepares us. Will you trust that he is powerful, loving, and capable? And will you believe that even though you can't see what he's doing, that he is working for your good and for his glory? Deliverance will come. If not in this lifetime, it will come in the final and glorious reign of Jesus Christ in a new heaven and new earth. That is our ultimate hope. Our deliverance is secure in his sovereignty. Here's the second reason for hope in crisis deliverance can be accomplished through anyone, through anyone. So, Pharaoh here. He ramps up the suffering of the Israelites. He moves from forced labor to violence to murder. And he approaches the midwives in verses 15 to 16 and tells them to kill the Hebrew baby boys. That These midwives were most likely chief midwives who oversaw all the other Hebrew midwives. Right? There's a two, two million people. That's a lot of babies, right? So they probably oversaw them all. And Pharaoh is just saying in kind of a very discreet way, when you help give delivery, when you help give birth here, just make up a story cause an accident, just say, you know what, the, the, the baby didn't survive, and try to control the population that way. Well, the midwives would not do it. In verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So what happened here is eventually years pass, and the Pharaoh and his council, they look out and they say, whoa, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Israelites going on. And there's a lot of baby boys running around here. What is going on here? And they go, and Pharaoh goes back to the midwives, and the midwives say in the text, oh, you know what happened is that these Hebrew women, man, they're popping out faster than we can get there. Sorry, there's nothing we can do. And Pharaoh knows right away a quick one has been pulled on him, and he just done loses his mind, and he makes a very evil edict. Any male Israelite that's born must be thrown into the Nile River to die. And it's because of this edict, a Levite woman has to sacrifice her baby. She's had this baby for three months. But if you guys have had babies, at a certain point, the cry, like there's nothing more you can do. Like You're going to find out that you have a baby here. So this Levite woman sacrifices her baby, or so it seems, that by chance here, that this baby is put in a basket right next to where the Pharaoh daughter bathes. And this Pharaoh's daughter decides to keep the baby and to call him Moses. And when this happens, it just so happens that Moses' sister hops out and says, do you need someone to help you nurse that baby? I have the perfect person for that. And it's Moses' mom. And what ends up happening here is that Moses is raised by his own family and Pharaoh pays for the entire thing. Again, the more Pharaoh exerts his will, the more he is accomplishing God's plan. And what I want you to see here is that the heroes of our story are all women. They are all women, all five of them. The two midwives, Moses' mom, Moses' sister, and the Pharaoh's daughter. That all of them looked to Pharaoh's edict and said, no, we're not going to do it now what makes this so notable is because these ladies in that society and culture would not have been considered strong in the world but weak and lowly that they would not have been in positions of power and influence yet God used them to bring about his deliverance now how can we have hope in this it's because When God brings deliverance, he can do it in the most unlikely of ways and use the most unlikely of people. And he does this to show you that he is not limited or bound in any way. That he can use anyone to carry out his plan. That in his deliverance, the only condition is on one person, and that's just on him. So so for example, when you look at the moments of crisis in your life, Right? When I look at the moments of crisis in my life, sometimes it seems like it's the most random people that come to save the day. Or sometimes God uses you to save someone else's right life. That on the outside, this all looks like one big happy accident, but it's not. It's God working to bring about deliverance. Uh, let me just give you two stories here. Uh, first, many years ago as a church, We decided to have a men's retreat here in the city, and we thought that it would be great on a Saturday morning to do a five-mile run. I have no idea why that was a good idea, but we decided that, you know what, let's wake up at 5.30 a.m. This would be a great bonding experience, so let's just go ahead and run. So all of us run, and the final stop was at the Lake Shore, okay, at 31st Street Beach. So we stopped there, but then we realized that we're missing two guys, Mark Hamster and Hat Potter. He comes to this location right here. Now, these guys are pretty fit. Mark's an army guy. And we're like, are they really that slow? Like, what's going on here, right? And for 45 minutes, they are nowhere to be found. Finally, they catch up to the group. And we were like, what happened? So they tell us the story. That they said that them being actually the fastest people in the group decided to stay in the back to make sure we didn't quit. They stayed in the back, and they said that as they were running, they noticed at a museum campus, that there was a six-year-old boy at 6 15 a.m all by himself crying and when they and when mark and hap went up to this child and said hey where's your parents what's going on here i don't know where they're at i lost them so mark stays with the the six-year-old kid and hap runs Three miles, not messing around. He runs all over museum campus. He runs all around the lake trying to find the parents. And for half an hour, he could not find them. That's how lost this kid was. And finally, as half's running, he sees a family crying and frantic and losing their mind. And he's like, I know exactly who they are. So he goes to the family and says, You know, are you missing a six-year-old boy? And they're like, Yes, we can't find him. We called the police, we don't know where he's at. And Hap and Mark are able to bring the family back together. Now let me just say, a random retreat, on a random run, with a bunch of random guys, seeing a random kid at a random time, and deliverance happens, nothing is ever random with God. Here's another story. You know, when my wife had our first miscarriage, our faith took a really big hit. That we were sad, we were angry, we were heartbroken. And, and that first Sunday when we could actually get ourselves to church, we could barely do it. And when we got there, we could not feel anything but anger and hurt. And the worship leader decides to go up there and the very first song this person plays, I don't even remember if it was a, if it was a male or female, Like we were just so lost in the moment, was Blessed Be Your Name. And this is a song that we've sung hundreds of times before, but this time the words had a weight that we've never felt before that the chorus goes like this. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. My wife and I could not muster the ability to sing those words, but the church, they sang the words of truth over us so that we could hear it. That the worship leader perfectly chose that song out of hundreds of songs to play that morning to serve the church. That the band got up early that morning to practice the song, to play it well so that we can sing it well. No one that morning knew the kind of burden and baggage that we were bringing to church. They weren't expecting it. We weren't even expecting it. But God used it all. He used an unlikely worship leader use an unlikely band, use an unlike, use unlikely congregants to bring healing to our broken hearts. God is working to bring deliverance, and he can use anybody, even you, to bring it. Now, before we move on here, I do want to share one more insight. Now, this insight isn't directly tied to the topic of this sermon, but it does come out of our passage, and it's the sacredness of life. You know, I know that you guys talked about this in length last week, but as you guys already know, that there has been a lot of heated and passionate debates around abortion, an issue that has brought me and a lot of my peers to tears. And and this past week, a bill was passed to make Illinois one of the most progressive states around abortion. This grieves our God. Our God does not delight in death, but rejoices in life, for he is the giver and rescuer of all life. And I wanna show you guys that in our passage, God consistently sees infants as a blessing. That when God tells Adam and Eve to multiply, that is meant to be a blessing. When an Abraham who has given up on having kids is told that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars, babies were seen as a blessing of hope. When the midwives wanted to live rightly before God, they did so by saving the lives of these babies. And we read later that God honors and blesses them with babies of their own. The only person in our story who did not see babies as a blessing was the king of Egypt. Why? It's because they were a liability to him. That it threatened his power, it threatened his sovereignty. So before putting the lives of others first, he put himself first. That what God sees as hope, Pharaoh and his fear sees as a curse. And friends, I just want to let you guys know that I'm not trying to politicize right now. That is not how I'm wired. But I do want to show you what the word of God is saying. That all life is sacred and worth protecting. All life is precious and purposeful before God. This is true for the babies, true for the mothers, and true for the dads. And for any one of us sitting in these seats right now, and you've made the decision or pressured someone into ending a human life, I want to let you know that there is freedom and forgiveness that can be found at the cross. That you are loved by Jesus and you are loved by us. And if you're currently facing an impossible situation a crisis, and you're too scared and you just don't know what to do, I want to let you know that as your church, as your pastor, Rafe as your pastor, Nate as your elder, that we will be with you for the entirety of this pregnancy and we will help you raise this child. You are not alone. You are absolutely not alone. We will stand with you. Our God is a great God and he is great to deliver. Amen. 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 Here's our final reason for hope, our last point here. God's deliverance is greater than our disobedience. Now, we actually see this with Moses. Now, what you have to understand here is that what's happened thus far for Moses has been nothing short. remarkable that the Israelites are flourishing that even when things are turning sideways they're multiplying when Moses should have died God protects them through these incredible women and it's during the season of growing up Moses receives some of the best training and upbringing to become the rescuer of the Israelites first keep this in mind When Pharaoh's daughter decides to say Moses can be nursed by his mom, it meant that the next five to eight years of Moses' life, he learns what it means to have a Hebrew culture. He learns what it means to have a Hebrew identity. But then after that, he grows up in the Pharaoh's house as a prince of Egypt. And when he's part of Pharaoh's house, he has access to the world's best education and training. None of the Israelites would have had this, but because Moses was ordained by God to have this, he has the best of both worlds. That right now, Moses is a man who's a Hebrew, and he's also a man who's been trained as a general. He is set up for this in, in verse chapter 2 verse 11 it says that Moses walked out to see the burdens of his people do you know what this means he identified himself as a hebrew he had compassion on his people he saw he was angered by the injustice up until verse 11 Moses here he is set up to be israel's great deliverer but in verse 12 he done screws it all up okay screws it all up in verse 12 in frustration towards injustice, it leads him to rage, and he kills an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew. And the next thing you know, gossip spreads, and everyone knows, including Pharaoh. So Moses, who was in this position of influence and change, is now a fugitive on the run. He runs to Midian a couple of days from Egypt, and in Midian, he finds a wife, has a kid, and it says in the text that he's content he's done he's like this is good this is as good as it's gonna get the next time we see him is in chapter 3 verse 1 where he is now 80 years old and taking care of sheep Moses was a man who had everything he was set up to be the hero but he was anything but that instead of leading people he was shepherding sheep Instead of being this young and charismatic and vibrant leader, he's 80 years old and looking towards the tail end of his life in the wilderness. Moses on paper here has screwed it all up. And worst of all, because of him, his people continue to suffer. Hope is dying. Now, when we think about our lives here and how crisis comes in, now sometimes it comes in because of the sin of others. And sometimes, oftentimes, it comes because of the sin that, that we do. That we say things that we shouldn't say. We look at things we shouldn't look at. We do something that we shouldn't do. And just like Mo- Moses, it brings our life to a full stop. That we see this mistake that we've made and we think to ourselves, I'm done. That Moses is thinking, I'm done. But here's the good news of our passage here. God wasn't yet done with him. That if you think about the theater analogy, that the show wasn't coming to an end here. The show was just about to begin. Because you see here that the 40 years in the desert of Midian was not a waste. It was a time of preparation that God knew that in order for Moses to lead Israel to freedom, he had to grow up. He needed the emotional maturity to do it. Now, Now notice this though. That Moses here, he was incredible. He was a man of justice. That when he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he got involved. The next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting, he gets involved. He runs to Midian, sits by a well, and sees the daughters of Jethro being harassed by these shepherds, he gets involved. Moses is a man of justice, he's a defender of people. That is awesome, you want that from a general. But Moses was also too prideful and arrogant and had no control over his temper god needed to mature him into the leader that he needed him to be he needed to mature him into a leader that the israelites would follow now what does this mean for us sometimes it takes a long time for god to get us ready You know, don't think that God is wasting your time just because your life is not where you think it is. God is sovereign, and he's up to more than you can ever know. And oftentimes, the people God uses most powerfully are the ones he has put in the wilderness first. God's deliverance is greater than our disobedience. All the good, bad, and ugly in Moses' life, God was able to weave into exactly what he needed to happen. Romans 8.28 says this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What this verse means is that we can't mess up our lives when we give it to God because it's not ours anymore. It belongs to him that we cannot out grace and we cannot see our failures as being the final thing because even God uses our failures to make us more like Jesus. Friends, just because you're in the middle of the story, in the middle of a hard season, in the middle of a crisis, it doesn't mean that you should despair and lose hope. Look at what God is going to do with Moses. That this guy who is 80 years old, his best days are not behind him. His best days are yet before him. His greatest days of influence for God's purposes is still yet to come. The same is true for You. God's deliverance is greater than our disobedience and our crisis. Amen? Amen. Now, what's an application? Let me just give you one application as we wrap up. Pray for deliverance. Pray for deliverance. At the end of chapter two, the Israelites are doing just that. They're groaning and they're crying out for help and asking, God, help us. God, are you there? God, please step in. And they're wondering, God, are you going to do anything? The answer is, absolutely yes. When we pray for deliverance, he hears every cry. Look at chapter 2 again, verses 23 and 25. Look at how this opening narrative, this opening historical context and setting ends. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The final sentence here has four verbs. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. Chapters 1 and 2 are as bleak and as dark as it gets, but it is not without hope. Because there is a God who is not deaf to our cries, that we have a God who is not distant from our pain, we do not have a God who is blind to our anguish, we do not have a God who forgets his promises. The author gives us these two final verses so that we would know deliverance is on its way because God is on his way. When you cry out to him, day after day, year after year, for a lifetime, know that God has not forgotten, that he has not missed your prayers, he has not closed his eyes, he has not stopped his ears, he knows, he hears, he sees, there is more going on backstage than you realize. This opening narrative is filled with anguish and pain, but it doesn't end with anguish and pain. It ends with saying, God knew. When God knows, when God remembers, he always acts. He always delivers. He will always save. Bondage, enslavement, oppression, our crisis will not have the final word. God will always have the final word. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father God, some of us here in this room today that we have been in a crisis, we're in a crisis, or we're about to head into one. And Father, in those moments, it can shake our lives like nothing else can. And God, I do pray and I would ask that you would help us, Lord, to see that you are the one that is holding us strong. That, Father, that you are the one that's going to endure. help us to endure to faithfulness. And, Father, I really do ask and pray that God, that, God, that with deliverance, that, God, that in this work that you're going to do, that, God, that you would help us, Lord, to see you working behind the scenes, that even though sometimes it can seem so quiet, it can seem so silent, God, you are always at work. Father, we thank you that in all that we're talking about here, Lord, it points us back to Jesus Christ, our great deliverer, the one who goes on the cross and takes our sins on our behalf. So, Father, we thank you for him. We sing to him, our great deliverer, the one who is mighty to save. It's in his name we pray. Amen.